Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Sean Barron, co-founder of Redone, the LA-based brand that specializes in reworked vintage denim. I wanted to ask Sean about how the brand's approach to marketing sustainability has changed now that everyone's going there and how the loungewear obsession has impacted the business in the last year. Welcome, Sean. Hey, Jill. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm so happy you're here. How are you? I'm good. It's another day. Another day in the, you know, in the circle. <laughs> in paradise. Well, it's, de- about- it's definitely paradise in Los Angeles, but it's another Groundhog Day. <laughs> Tell me what all, where you are. What's happening in the background there? Uh, I'm in my office, and behind me is our design studio, marketing team. Like All, of the, all the people behind me uh, helped build my company. So I thought it'd be nice to, for you guys. I usually, sometimes the shades are closed, but I thought it'd be nice for you to see this. You probably don't get to see a lot of these kinds of things when you talk to folks. Yeah. So for those who don't know, I'm I'm seeing a, a glass behind Sean. The whole setup is behind him. People are working hard. Have you guys been in this office for quite some time? Uh, I want to say two and a half years. Nice. Uh, so when we first started, we were in a very, very small space. And we, we actually had, I actually had three people sitting at my own personal desk at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so it, when I when I took this space, I was much happier that I actually had an office I can close and you know have private meetings with and all that stuff. Well, I have to hear the whole story. Let's circle back to your launch, 2014. I'm obsessed with kind of the denim scene in LA, like in years past. I know it's always been thriving and jumping and sexy, but how would you describe it when you launched? You know, it's funny. I used to I founded a few other big companies that I had launched, founded, sold, and and then took a break. And so I wasn't paying attention. However, I just wasn't in tune to that at that time. So for me, the we started this company with no whiteboard, no like, okay, we're going to change the market. We actually didn't think it would be a company, to be quite honest with you. We thought it was a project. <laughs> and you know, I had a I have a partner called Jamie and he is a very vintagey kind of guy. And he said to me, what do you think of the idea of taking Levi's apart and making jeans that fit girls, you know, cause they're men's jeans and, you know, girls do that today already. They go out to the vintage store, then they buy the ones too big and they hope they get a tailor and it usually doesn't work and it's very expensive. And I Definitely. said, I said, that's an awesome idea, except it's impossible. <laughs> but I said, it, I said, what's awesome about it is almost not what you're saying, but if you're looking at a millennial customer, a brand that would resonate and start to, like build a community in the millennial space would be uh, scarcity, exclusivity, and storytelling. And those three actually live inside of one pair of Levi's. You know what I mean? Because if you have a vintage pair, they're very exclusive because they're not, there's like, it's one of one. They're scarce because there's not that, you can't, there's not an infinite amount. And each gene really tells a story of like, maybe a trucker bought it and then he gave it to his girlfriend and she gave it to Goodwill. Like there's all these story telling moments that even if you don't know them, you know that they exist. And that's super, super like tangible in a way. So, but I still said, Jamie, there's no way to do it. But because I think the three pillars exist, why don't we try? And on the ninth month, I actually said to him, if this doesn't work today, we're just going to remain friends, but we're not going to do it. And it actually worked. (laughs) And and then we tested again and we, and then we, we're like, oh no, we got to build a website now. <laughs> like that was, like, what do you mean? I got to do that? And and you know, because 2014, like there was a lot of 
that business, but I didn't know how to do it, you know? So we just figured it out and then we launched. And oh, the interesting thing is we, sh- we, we then said, let's shoot 12 different, no, seven different girls that are all unique because each gene's unique. Each woman should be unique because most gene brands, like you mentioned before, were all making one skinny legging blue thing. It wasn't even a gene anymore. And, really? and everybody, so a girl would buy the same gene her friend had. They didn't look different. And people are so individual. So we were yeah. stopped a couple of friends and they said, you know, bring your friends and all that stuff. And one girl that came was Bella Hadid, who was not famous yet. And, I mean. <laughs> I mean, it was very, very, she was really sweet. And she came in with, and my wife was in it and other friends of ours and this Chloe Bartoli, who's a stylist and a good friend. And all these people were just so excited to do this thing. And they, we didn't pay anybody. We had no money. We just kind of did it. And, uh, and it worked. And, and what happened was, so Bella was in it. And then we got like, she had a little bit of followers at that time, like maybe a hundred thousand. And then she posted and people got excited and we launched and we sold out in 12 minutes at midnight. Nice. And by the nice. morning when we woke up, there was 1,200 people waiting on a waiting list that we had built and captured that. And then Vogue and every kind of media that you'd want to cover it, covered it. And then, and then, we, and then you know, we had to talk to Levi's. It became a real, like, from a project to like, oh, maybe we have something here. Was it more a, a challenge to, I guess, source the vintage denim? Or would you say it's more a challenge to get the, the fit right? After you have the denim, how are we going to recreate it and make it fit be able to allocate sizes to it, all that jazz. Uh, all that jazz is hard. <laughs> yeah. From, you know, from finding the genes. Of course, listen, Joe, when we first found, we found a guy that had 10. Then we found a guy, we found his guy that had 100. Then we found that. And finally, we got to, we are the single biggest purchaser of vintage Levi's worldwide. We've been through, and I'm probably going to get this number wrong, over 120,000 pairs of upcycled Levi's to date. Nice. And, you know, what's most interesting about our company is that everything we did, we had no idea what we were doing, you know, in terms of, but one of the, I think the, what makes me excited every day is we continually get comments, emails, DMs, and say, we love what you do. Getting, we didn't know how to interpret that. We're like, oh, you like Levi's? And we started realizing people love that we were upcycling, that we were working with American heritage, all the things that we didn't even think were part of the, you know, we thought we were problem solving. We actually, that wasn't even a, wasn't what people thought they love what we do. It was really more about you're doing something very sustainable and you're you're working with American heritage brands and moving them to the luxury space. I mean, no one's really taken brands from the mass market and moved it up. It's easy to come up and bring it down, but going yeah. but lifting up is very interesting. So there, it had to be heritage, and it had to be brands that people had relationships with. So then we started with Hanes, and we went to their we went into their. Um, their archives and looked at the different decades of t-shirts and we said, Oh, we understand. We, we don't want to redo old t-shirts. We want to redo the decades with you guys. And that was yes. really a big moment that we redid their fabric from the sixties. We actually, I took the fabric and I took the specs of it that they used then and remade it. So now it's, it's like a replica of the fabric from the sixties. So, and then the story goes on. The story goes on. Nice. Nice. Did Levi's have to come into the mix early on? I guess even for legal purposes, like how soon did you have to say, hey, we're working with your stuff? So since we have a few minutes here, I'm going to tell you a very funny story about that. Um, So after we launched and we, you know, within three or four months, we became, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, I don't want to say successful, but we became popular. You know, I guess that's the right word. And people were talking about our brand and I sat in the, 
in a meeting with, with Jamie and, and a couple of the folks, I said, you know, we're going to have to talk to Levi's because these guys are going to not be happy or, or they're going to be happy. Like we didn't know. And, and, you know, we looked around the room, like, does anybody know anybody at Levi's? And I actually said, you know, I met this guy once two and a half years ago that used to work there and I'll reach out to him. And, and I did. And, and I said to him, Hey, do you think there's, can you help me find someone at Levi's that could help me like connect with the right person, licensing people, whatever it is. And he said, yeah, no problem. Give me, a, give me a week and I'll poke around. And he called me about four minutes later and he says, you're not going to believe this, Sean. Before I even did it, I got a text from someone at Levi's asking if they knew, if I knew you. <laughs> like, oh my God. Yeah. Like really like in the same <laughs> 10 minute window, he didn't even like hang up the phone and just by sheer coincidence, which our whole company is built on coincidences. He, um, he connected me with, at the time was the assistant to the president of Levi's, a guy called JC, who is an amazing human being. And JC and I spoke, we got a call together, then I flew up there immediately. And we really just talked about what the world looks like today in terms of brands. And, you know, he said something that I'll never forget. He says, you know, now that I'm the president of the company, uh, Chip and I, who's the CEO, you know, we, we, we look at Levi's as a 110 year old startup and we don't want to fight with you guys or not. Like we want to embrace you and like, let's do this together. And so we, we made a really beautiful arrangement as a business kind of a hybrid arrangement to work together. And yeah. it's been amazing ever since. And we've done projects together and we're, we're in constant contact. And I think we've been super beneficial to each other and it's been fantastic. Nice. Is your fabric coming directly from Levi's now? That's how it's working. Nope, nothing. We we well, we don't buy fabric for that part of our project. We buy vintage Levi's, and you know they don't yep. have them either. I mean, they're they make yeah. new stuff, so they don't have them. So we're all you know people who want to buy vintage Levi's have to do what we do. We're just really good at it now. Okay, that all makes sense. Tell me again. A, a cha- I guess it's not a coincidence, but it's definitely a trend that's working to your advantage. I've been seeing all over TikTok that. <laughs> It's not about the the skinny jean. It's about these, like you said, it's not the skinny jean everyone has. It's the kind of unique fits. It's the, I guess, mm, I wouldn't say wider fit, but um, more boyfriend or more loosey-goosey. Anyway, are you seeing an uptick in interest in the styles that you sell? And I'm sure you, you I know you sell skinny as well, but go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think the start of COVID and people being at home made people want to wear looser jeans and looser clothes. And we've always kind of had a breath of that anyway, because a lot of the fits that we have are, are loose fitting and, you know, everything we do is inspired by a decade. So like the eighties and nineties were kind of loose fitting jeans. So we, um, yeah, I, I, there's a lot of loose fitting jeans. Now don't get me wrong. This, the, the skinny jeans are working, but what's happening is the skinny jeans with a straighter leg versus the super legging jeans. So yes. that's what's happening. Like the girl that still wants to feel that she needs a skinny jean, she's wearing a skinny straight versus a legging jean. And then yes. the, the girl that's like understands fashion from a different vantage point, loves the looser fitting, you know, baggy jean with the right boot, you know, like it's just, so both are kind of working at together, but we're having, but when you could never sell loose fitting jean, Jill, now you can. And it's, and it's, it's a lot of fun to design those too. Totally. Where do you meet Jamie? Do you, do you guys go back in terms of, um, yeah, working together in the fashion industry? How did you guys come together with this idea? You know, Jamie's a, a guy that a lot of people know and are friends with. And I was just one of uh, one of the guys that he's friends with in LA. He's a, he's <laughs> a lot more social than me, but he, um, 
yeah, he, I, I just known him for a long time, you know, just from being, yeah. being guys in LA, uh, had nothing to do with fashion. He had a, a, a company that was taking all the jeans from the contemporary guys and, and then having sales on, on camp, college campuses all over the country. And it was a big kind of thing. So he went to all the big brands here in LA at that time, way before I, way before we got together. Uh, so, yeah. so I think it, probably at one point our, our past crossed when he maybe bought some stuff from, bought some things from me and Joie, but, um, but we, we've always been friends and now we're, we're like brothers at this point. Yes. So your career path, 100% uh, fashion focused. Have you just been in this world and, uh, yeah, are you, is redone kind of your latest and greatest? What, what's the evolution? What's next? I mean, look, redone for me is the greatest thing I've ever done. And, and it makes me every morning wake up excited to like, just run here <laughs> or, or, yeah. or do something because it's not a clothing company to us whatsoever. It's a brand. And we are not just, you know, we've created some a movement of something that's very special with, you know, taking heritage brands and, and, and give them, you know, luxury relevance. We've taken sustainability to everything that we do. We, we are looking, we, we, we're looking to redo homes and with, with case study, you know, with the, uh, the, the guys from the fifties and sixties, like Neutra and all those guys and taking some of their old plants and rebuilding a home. So it's like redone home, you know, redone yes. like and cars. And we're talking to car companies about redoing cars from their vintage past, but doing them electric. So we definitely don't look at ourselves at all as a clothing brand. It's just one thing that we do. Um, yeah. And so I've had a lot of fun doing this industry, but I'm, this is the most fun because every day I can come up and, you know, I sit with an amazing team of people and go, what do you think of this idea? And they're like, oh yeah, we could try to do that, you know? And that's not, <laughs> you know, it's, it's less based on each jean or each t-shirt or each sweater. It's really like a, a whole thing. And my team is so empowered to constantly find new fabrics, new solutions for, for sustainability from, you know, circular to, uh, you know, upcycled, you know, into post-consumer, pre like every day, this is what we talk about. And, and in my 30 years in this industry, that was never what we spoke about. You know, it was more like, what's the cool leg shape or what's, you know, now it's like, we already know that. Like, let's talk about how to, what can we do to even do a better job, be more responsible as a company and, and, and build, build like a community of people that really just love what we're doing. And that's what we've learned to take that one tagline from, from our community and like build upon it. Like, we love what you're doing. Okay, let's give you more of things that we think you'll love. Yes. And when just, did sustainability come into play in, in your marketing messaging? Obviously, you've always been, uh, it's always been a focus, but um, was that uh, messaged from day one? You know, I, I would, if I told you it was, I'd be lying to you. I think we stumbled into it in 2014 when we started. It wasn't like sustainability was not top of the mind, you know, for anybody, you know, but what, ha like I said, what happened was as soon as we launched, people started saying, we love what you're doing. And then we would, you know, coax them in to tell us what they meant by that. And it was like, you're upcycling and you're saving the planet and you're, you're creating circular fashion. And then we're like, oh, wait a minute. And from that moment on, you know, right at the, the genesis of the brand, we started thinking, oh, wait a minute, this is, this is super important. And I, you know, got really deep into learning about it and studying all the things that, that you know, was not for me a, it wasn't for me like, oh, a marketing thing. It was more like, this is really interesting. And I have a 10 year old kid. And back then she was six years old or, you know, and I want to make sure like, wait a minute, the planet needs to be good for her. And that's, it wasn't just me talking. I was like, as I was learning, I was like, uh Oh, we, we, you know, we really need to be, we started this thing. Let's take this journey to the end. And so, you know, it was never a marketing thing. It was more of like, Oh, we've learned something and we need to continue learning. And it's really amazing to see what people are up to.
in in the in that part of our industry. Yeah. What would you say about more brands going there now? Like maybe um, you had a head start. More brands are kind of getting into this territory. I'm sure for those for the sustainable for the conscious consumer, there's more competition for that customer. Um, how would you describe the competition? Do you do you feel that you had kind of a leg up, or maybe a leg up in establishing? Uh, authenticity in that, like, it's not just marketing. Anyway, how would you describe it? I mean, I, listen, most of the time in life, when people compete in your space, you're not happy, right? And you try to, <laughs> it becomes like very competitive. For me, it's very exciting to see brands getting involved, seeing resources, you know, powering up, the, when I say resources, like vendors and stuff, really getting into how to do a better job from denim washing to fabrics. So I think it's great. And I think that maybe some people are doing it as, let's call it a marketing thing, which is up to them. But at the end of the day, the result still means that they're putting effort into being more responsible. And I think that is, that's what's great. Like, this is the one time when people are, are competing in the same space and it's actually great. And I think, you know, I think people help each other. We, I've talked to a couple other people. Oh, you should try this. Have you heard of that? You know, and we all, you know, or if I discover someone who knows how to regenerate fabric, which I learned, I told someone else about it and they looked into it. So, you know, it's one of those very weird things that the, the competitive thing is actually not competitive. It's actually, you know, more educational and it's good for the, and it's good for the world. So it's, I think it's great. Tell me about the year that was. We're in March 2021. Uh, <laughs> things started to go wild last year. Uh, what did you guys experience? I mean, you know, I guess first we experienced fear, right? Like I was in Paris when the when it went when it started going crazy you know we were there and yep. but we just thought oh that's just italy you know what i mean at that point china had already done but then when i got, got home it was you know five days later that that like they're shutting us down we're shutting the whole country down you know and we got you know first it was fear like okay we need to be safe you know we have a family and everybody in the company has family so we're like okay let's start with being safe then let's start figuring how we're going to keep our company alive you know yeah. and it became, um, okay, what are we doing? You know? And I, and I have 75 people working for me and I need to make sure these folks are safe and they realize that we are worrying about their safety. Cause you know, it's two things to be safe, but make the people that you work for, you know, they need to feel that we're, we have them in at, at you know, their best interest. So we, we started, you know, buying more and more dead stock and, and cutting them ourselves and reshaping them. And then, you know, we were making aprons out of denim because people were cooking a lot. So we were taking vintage Levi's and creating aprons. And then we got into the mask business. Um, nice. Which was, you know, a really big, it was really great because we gave five masks away for every mask we made. So, nice. you know, we created, we created some revenue, but also we're able to help the frontliners. Um, you know, and it's, it's funny because it just, it's a blur now because I, you know, we're here and we're like, we made it and things worked out and our direct consumer business, which was already a digitally native brand became stronger and stronger. And our message got deeper and deeper. Did your customer shopping behavior uh, surprise you? Did they continue to shop? Did they, they also move to sweatpants? Did they take a break? The, I get, you know, sure. They bought more sweatpants or they bought looser jeans or they bought more oversized t-shirts. I mean, you could, you could, quantify that but what's more interesting is that people were shopping and you know we were like why how what, like we couldn't even believe it ourselves you know in a weird way like and people were buying masks like 
like crazy. You know, we, I think we went through 50, 60,000 pairs of masks, or not pairs, but masks. Yeah. And, you know, so it just was, I think it just, again, showed that the human nature is very resilient. And after the initial shock of like, what's happening? Are we safe? People found ways to continue to, to shop and within the context, because they, they had to go on Zoom. They had, you know, the whole story that everybody talks about. But my takeaway is like, people became very, people just, at the end of the day, people are strong. And, and their shopping or buying patterns showed that, that, you know, just because we have code, we're still going to shop. You know, that was very interesting to watch. And, uh, and it wasn't price wars. It wasn't like only on, only on sale. It was people just were resilient. And I think it made them happy to shop. And, you know, and it was just very interesting to watch it happen. What percentage, I know you're a digitally native brand. What, uh, what percentage of your sales were digital prior to the, prior to last March, um, and what is the percentage now? I think prior was about, you know, obviously it was a hundred percent when we first launched, yeah. and then we started working with some stores around the world, so it became and it became that grew very fast. So, right before I would say it was about 30 35 percent around there, yeah. and then um, uh, digital to or DTC to wholesale. Then in the COVID, it became like a lot more DTC. And now it's about 50-50. But we were always planning that anyway. It's strange because we, you know, my whole strategy was more direct consumer, not even because anyone with wholesale or not wholesale. I just think it's it's the way this brand works the best. And we're opening stores. So, you know, and picking the right partners to be wholesale uh, was also quite important. So, like, the right partners are part of the, the, the mix. Uh, but it's 50-50 now. Yeah. What makes a, a right partner? I think not not a partner that actually isn't doesn't over distribute your brand and, and also doesn't um, you know understands markdown cadences the way we we understand it, like as little as possible. And also just the right atmosphere of the store, the right localization of the store. You know, the, you know, there's we love these stores all over the country in the US that are great specialty stores that have like lo- like in Connecticut and these areas where there's localization of customers we find it we find it really interesting to to sell them because they're they you know they have there's a relationship with the store owner and the customer you know in, in these great specialty stores even some of the like the webster that has a even the webster has great relationships with their customers you know so i think it's it's relationship building time and and those wholesale customers that are investing in relationships are the ones that we're investing to work with. Yeah. That moved from 30% a wholesale or no, no, 30% DTC to 50%. Um, did that involve kind of eliminating some partners or maybe eliminating some of the inventory you were giving them? I mean, I think unfortunately COVID eliminated some partners just in general, like a Barney's. Well, that's yeah. actually pre COVID. So some of that, some, there was just a natural attrition of elimination based on, economy, COVID and all that. Uh, I think we we also kind of rolled back a few that weren't fitting our our like platform that we wanted to be in. Some customers just got lost because of economics and some just didn't measure to our, our what we wanted for our brand. I mean, they have great stores, but they didn't, it just didn't measure up to what we thought was the relationship with the customer, what it looks like in the store, that, you know, how we felt being in there, what it felt like as a brand, you know, to be in part of that. Yeah. Your stores, you mentioned physical retail uh, mm-hmm. expansion. What, what's the plan there? 
Well, it's a, it's a big plan. <laughs> <laughs> so we opened our first store in Malibu, California, um, in September, which is kind of a weird time to open in Malibu, but and it's only 200 square feet, which is very small. But we found a way to make it, you know, uh, I think we have like a 500 units in that store, which is crazy for 200 square feet. So we figured a way to do it without making it look cluttered. And it's doing extremely well. So that was like our first, like, you know, testing out what a mini store would look like, you know, I mean, 200 square feet is, in, in, is the smallest I could ever, I can never do that again because it doesn't <laughs> exist. But, but, you know, we like this platform of five to 700 square feet stores. And then we like a few more bigger ones in certain cities. So we're opening um, West Hollywood on Melrose, mm, April-ish. We're still in the middle of the, the construction now. April, we're opening the Hamptons, which is a small 500 square foot store, also in April, in the end of April. And we're looking between Aspen and Miami right now. We're going to decide on that in the next couple of days and open that in May. Okay, great. Do you consider like one of those small scale stores? It's kind of, um, I guess, a compliment to your e-commerce site. Do you envision that that's where people will maybe browse online and they'll come in to actually try on and make a purchase? Is there a fitting room? What What's happening there? Yeah, there is a fitting room. And up until now, it's a combination of everything you said. Some people, yeah. oh, I saw you on Instagram. Oh, you're here. Oh, you're my favorite brand. Thank God you have a store I can try on the jeans. Like there's so many different answers to that question that, you know, we're not opening any stores <clears throat> that don't have a model that can make money. You know what I mean? So we're not like, oh, this is our marketing store. You know, like that, that to me is an old thought process. Like this is a place where people can come try on our clothes. And equally important is that we are starting to work on live streaming and how to communicate, you know, so the, the salesperson could you know, have a, a sales appointment with someone that doesn't come in and then we can deliver to them, you know, so there's, and which is, which we're not the only people doing that, but I think it's also like a hub for great sales talent to almost be their office so they can start selling, you know, remotely to clients. Absolutely. How many stores will you have by the end of 2021? Well, we also have, uh, we have a shop in Le Bon Marche in Paris that's opening now. Actually, we just finished it today. Ooh, congrats. And one of the Selfridges in London, which is opening when London opens again, which they say is April 14th, I think. Yeah. What are you finding in turn in terms of those lease terms? Are you uh adding any uh I guess bullet points to really safeguard yourself there? Yes. <laughs> That's what I'd like to say. Yes. <laughs> I think no, but I think look that you know, the landlords for a long time had the upper hand and I think now, as opposed to using upper hand language, it's more like now there's equal footing so we can discuss how to win together and limit our losses together. So when you sit down with a landlord that's that's reasonable and you say, look, like the, the future is, you know, risky and unknown. And so why don't we find a, a solution that you feel comfortable, we feel comfortable. And if there's and if it doesn't work, we're, we both feel it's okay to leave, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, so it's just having the... I think it's just having the landlords and the brands with the right attitude that know how to work together because they need to rent their space and we need to not be on risk if it doesn't work because of what's going on in the world. For sure. Well, I think that I discovered your brand probably maybe from Bella, definitely a model, <laughs> um, wanted to look like her. What's working to attract customers now? You know, it's 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 a multitude of things, I think, from social media to 
you know, the people that are in our community that, that wear our clothes to our digital marketing and how we, you know, the way we deploy ads um, and, and continually, you know, building the brand and not the clothes. That, that yeah. really seems to work because, and I say this, Jill, every day, like someone, you know, a big percentage of people say to us, we love what you're doing. And I think that's, if we continue to produce things that people love that we're doing is why we continue to, to you know, acquire new customers. From clothes to everything we talk about. I don't know if you watch our Instagram and our stories when we do the community roundup. And like, it's, you know, we're just not saying, oh, these are the biggest influence. Like these are women that we think are, are like brand on cool girls. Some only have 2000 followers, but they get big likes, you know, because it's like, it talks about the brand more. So we're not, you know, we're not just putting, you know, every big name on our, on our feed. And I think, Continually to build things that people like what we're doing is 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 what's super important. I'm all about the percentages. What percentage are your uh, of sales is denim? Um, I know you've had some category expansion, but uh, is it ninety plus? I mean, since we started that this journey in fourteen, you know, it was hundred percent just Levi's, and then the Hanes thing became like thirty percent. And so at this day, when you so there's many categories here. There's jeans that we make and t-shirts we make and sweatshirts and sweaters that are made in some sustainable methodology and responsible methodology. And then there's the Levi's, which is, I don't know, 20 to 25% of the business. And, and that's by, by design too, because we can't make that many of them. You know, it's not like it, it's, it's very limited. So you can't produce, you can produce, you, there's a supply demand ratio here that that's very interesting because we cannot, make as many as we have demand for. This is yeah. impossible. So I can't, I mean, I can't make it hundred percent of the business because there's not, there's not enough, there's not enough to do. I mean, there's not enough raw materials. So I would say Levi's is 20 to 25% depending on the, on the, on the channel. Um, and all the other, and then we also do other things that are upcycled. For example, we bought tons of cool vintage sweaters and we cut them apart, made new sweaters out of them. So I would say the upcycle plus the Levi's might be 30 some odd percent, 35%. And the rest is everything from footwear to um, jeans, t-shirts, sweaters, you know, all, pretty much all categories. We don't make suits and things like that. Uh, we did for a minute, but we we realized that that's not who our customers look. They're not coming to us for that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we have all these I was way off. <laughs> Well, you were, but you know, what's interesting, Jill, is what you said is the perception of our brand, which is really interesting, like, because that's what people know us for. And that's what makes our company interesting. So again, you also like what we do because you like the idea of a vintage upcycled Levi's for whatever reason. So we're apparently we're doing our job right because the message is still very clear when it even resonates with you that way. Yes, we're running out of time, but I have to ask about this marketplace strategy. I know you have a marketplace online. I think that that uh, maybe carries over into stores, but um, yeah, what's happening there? Um, yeah, we so we started this marketplace um, recently wh- where we take artisans from, you know, we, what product that we find out that we find is super cool and interesting. There's also interesting people attached to it. So we founded this idea of, of a marketplace where we found a, a guy that does amazing jewelry, all from vintage coins and things that he found. And then uh, we did some things with, with retrospects who, who have vintage glasses. And, and then we did a flower thing, a sustainable like dried flower thing from a, a florist that's actually in the corner of our street. 
So it's this idea of bringing together, I guess, like-minded creative people that that we can actually showcase within our world. So we're like excited to work with them. They're excited to work with us. And our our community is really loving it because it's all sustainable. All these people are either upcycled, recycled, something. And and now we're going to put it, launch it into our stores also. And then like, we might even find someone like that comes from the Hamptons that does something that'll be exclusive to the Hamptons store invite, you know, we, so that'll start happening also. Okay, great. You are speaking my language. Love the shoes. That's newer. When did the shoes launch? Your own shoes? The boot. Well, we did a collab with Bass Weijin a while back that was really great. We did it. We, we, we recreated some of their, you know, because the, the penny loafer was, you know, they, they invented the penny loafer, which is a big thing. So okay. we did that. Then we started launching our own. We, did, we launched with a boot and we make all that stuff in Italy. So we launched with a boot, um, gosh, last year, and it did really well. And we then uh, started doing sneakers, also uh, made in Italy. So that's been now the first drop of sneakers. I do remember because it was right before COVID, so it wasn't a great situation. <laughs> but it was uh, the first time of spring of last year of 2020 was the launch of the sneaker collection. Amazing. Well, I feel like you guys are in growth mode, uh, opening stores, expanding to categories. What can we expect this year uh, th- other than what we've discussed thus far? I mean, look, our goal is typically our brand would have powered up a, a couple of collaborations or I mean, I hate that word collaboration, but partnerships, you know, already. But 2020, like stopped four of them and they're in the work. You know what I mean? Everybody was like, no. So, you know, 2021 will be light in collaborations, but 22 will be powered up in a couple of really amazing ones that we can't uh, talk about or the other people on this phone will get mad at me (laughs) (laughs) that I can see their names. But um, yeah, there's, you'll, you know, and I'm sure we'll let you know as soon as, as soon as we can talk about it, but we will do more heritage brand collaborations along with uh, you know, I love people collaborations. Like when we did Cindy Crawford, it was just such an organically yes. perfect thing to do. So like we have like these buckets, like is it a collaboration where it's a heritage brand that we'll do for a long time? We'll, we'll keep it going for like Haynes, Levi's and a couple of those we're talking to now, which is a partnership. And then there's like a person collaboration where we find someone that we think is super interesting about the brand. There's a reason to do it. And then there's other kind of brand collaborations that are like one time, like what we do with Attico which was extremely successful and just such a wonderful process. So, you know, our, like I said, we have no playbook. Our playbook is, is always wide open. Uh, yeah. But there are a lot of stuff coming. We just can't talk about it because I don't want to jinx it, to be quite honest with you. Because yes. You never know what's going to happen. Totally. Well, fashion, we always hear fashion trends recycle. And right now, there's so much buzz about kind of nostalgia having a moment. But like, would in your eyes, does nostalgia, is that always like on trend? Does that always work i mean my opinion and it's, it could be my sole opinion is people love to have a relationship with something and yeah. it's even when you you know and you talk to your friends oh do you remember that tv show like there's that relationship with things from the past that make the present feel a little bit more warm and squishy in a way you know like it's just the way it's been that way for forever so i i'm a personal believer of of nostalgia never is not cool or not in fashion i think it's as long as there's something you have a, there's a, that someone has a relationship with they're always going to want that right it's on a, it's, it's safe it's a safe space you know what i mean and it's well, a conversation I love it 
Yeah, for sure. Well, definitely. Um, hope it, it, I think it'll hang on. <laughs> Good for you. Lucky for redone. But anyway, Sean, thank you so much for being here. This was great. Listen, I'm a big fan of your podcast. I, I had told Mark that our team that I want to do something with you before some other folks. So I'm ah! super excited that I got to speak with you because I listen to you every morning when I'm, when I'm, I listen to you every morning when I'm riding my bike and you know, whatever I'm doing and it's great. So Oh my God, uh, that means a lot to me. And I'm so excited to have you at our event uh, later this month. We get to see a lot of each other, so this will be fun. <laughs> okay, great. I'm excited too. Yes, thanks a lot, Sean. I appreciate it. If you want to hear more from me and Redone's Sean Barron, please join us at Glossy's Modern Commerce Summit next week from March 24th through 26th. We'll also be joined by Mickey Drexler, GAP CMO Mary Alderet. Goats Sen Sagano, and many more speakers from leading fashion brands. Go to glossy.co slash events for more details. See you next week on the Glossy Podcast. <laughs>